Welcome to Apologetics with Brian O'Connell, where in each episode, I answer difficult questions that confront Christianity. In our last episode, we started addressing the problem of evil, and I asked the question, does the presence of evil disprove the existence of God? We also asked the question, how could a loving God allow evil to exist in the world? In addressing these questions, we saw that eliminating God does not actually help explain the problem of evil. Not only that, but we also saw that evil exists because God created us with free will. Humans are free to act as they want, which can result in evil. However, although we all have free will, we learned in our last episode that free will does not remove God's sovereignty. Although the last episode didn't provide an explanation for evil that was emotionally satisfying, it did show that removing God doesn't provide a logical answer to the problem of evil. More than that, it was pointed out that just because we can't see a purpose for evil existing does not mean that God does not have a good reason for it. In this episode, we're going to continue our discussion on the problem of evil and address a question that I often hear, which is, how could God command the genocide of complete people groups in the Old Testament? Is the killing of whole populations an example of unjust genocide, or is it an example of righteous judgment? In order to answer this, let me present you with something to think about. If you were to open a newspaper, and the headline on the front page in bold letters reads, Judge Sentenced Rudolf Haas to Death. How would you respond? As of September 18th, 2021, my podcasts have been downloaded over 12,000 times in 59 countries and over 1,300 cities. With a listening audience this size, there will be a mixture of views on the death penalty. Regarding the death sentence of Rudolf Haas, we should ask ourselves, is the death penalty just or unjust? In order to answer this question, we need to know the crime that was committed. If I told you that Rudolf Haas was guilty of stealing a loaf of bread, you would argue that sentencing this man to death is clearly unjust. Now, some of you listening might already know that stealing a loaf of bread was not this man's crime. In fact, some of you who lived during the time of World War II or who are familiar with who Rudolf Haas was know that he was the commandant of Auschwitz during World War II. During World War II, the Germans used over 20 different concentration camps and many other sub-camps where they placed Jews, Poles, and other people groups. Besides these camps, the Germans had six extermination camps which as its name implies, these camps were used to exterminate millions of people. The worst of these extermination camps was Auschwitz, where over a million Jews and other prisoners were exterminated. As I just mentioned, the commandant of Auschwitz was Rudolf Haas, and on April 2, 1947, a judge sentenced Rudolf Haas to death for overseeing the murder of more than one million innocent people. After hearing his crimes, I don't think there is a single person who would argue that the sentence made by this judge was unjust. No, I think it's safe to say 
that everyone would argue that the sentence issued by the judge was righteous judgment. Now, you might be thinking, how does the death sentence of this Nazi commandant apply to our study of the book of Deuteronomy? In today's episode, we will be looking at Deuteronomy chapters 7 through Deuteronomy chapter 20. In these chapters, God issues a decree to have whole people groups destroyed. And it's this command that has led many people like the famous evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins to claim that God is a malevolent, genocidal bully, among other things. So, we need to ask ourselves, is God a malevolent, genocidal bully? Or is he a righteous judge? If you jump into Deuteronomy or any other passage of scripture without reading its context, you will conclude that God is wrathful and unjust. What amazes me is that people apply different rules when approaching the Bible than they do to books or movies. You never jump midway into a book or a movie and judge a character based on a couple of pages or scenes. In order to get a complete and accurate understanding of that person's character, you have to watch the full movie or read the whole book. So, how can we apply these contextual principles to our text? Well, let's turn our attention to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Before we look at this text, let me give you some background. The book of Deuteronomy was written by the prophet Moses shortly before his death. The purpose of Deuteronomy was to reestablish the covenant between God and His chosen people Israel that they entered into at Mount Sinai 40 years earlier. God delivered the Israelites from Egypt through miraculous signs. He brought ten plagues down on the Egyptians and parted the Red Sea. Not only that, but He led the Israelites on dry ground as they walked through where the sea had been parted. Besides these things, He provided manna from heaven, as well as other miraculous signs and wonders. When God brought the Israelites up to the promised land, they asked to send out spies to spy out the land. When the spies came back, they issued a negative report claiming that there were fortified cities and giants and that there was no way that they could go into the promised land without themselves being destroyed by the giants and the other more powerful nations. Joshua and Caleb trusted God and told the nation that with God, all things were possible, and that God will fight their battles. They pleaded with the nation to be strong and trust in God. But, as we know, the Israelites listened to the other spies and not Caleb and Joshua, and they failed to trust that God would fight for them and deliver their enemies over to them. As a result, God prevented the Israelites from entering into the Promised Land, and instead sent them into the wilderness to wander for 40 years until the faithless generation had died off. As the book of Deuteronomy opens, the Israelites had just spent 40 years wandering in the desert due to their lack of trusting in the one true God. The 40 years of punishment had just ended, and they're getting ready to enter into the promised land and take control of it. However, before they enter into the promised land, Moses gives them a series of speeches, which is what makes up the book of Deuteronomy. The first part of the book is chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 49. And it recounts Israel's wanderings in the wilderness and God's provisions. Chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 26, verse 19, describes the laws that Israel 
is expected to live by. Chapter 27, verse 1, through chapter 31, verse 30, lays out warnings for Israel if they fail to live according to the laws that God has set forth for them to obey. Chapter 31, verse 1, through chapter 43, is called the Song of Moses, and it describes Israel's covenant responsibility. In chapter 32, verse 44, through chapter 33, verse 29, Moses gives the Israelites one last exhortation and blessing. And then, in chapter 34, verses 1 through 12, is the death of Moses. From this outline, we can see that the book of Deuteronomy records the account of God reestablishing His covenant with His chosen people, informing them into a holy nation. God is a holy God, and He requires His people to be holy too. As we jump into Deuteronomy chapter 7, we're going to see that God is commanding the Israelites to go into the promised land and destroy the nations. However, something else that I want to point out is that the book of Joshua is the fulfillment of God's commands in Deuteronomy. In other words, Deuteronomy is the game plan, so to speak, whereas the book of Joshua is how the game plan is actually carried out. So now that we have this background, let me read to you Deuteronomy chapter 7. In this chapter, we read the following. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Then dropping down to verse 16. We read the following. You will destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. And then lastly, dropping down again to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 22 through 23, we read that the Lord your God will drive out the nations before you, little by little. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once. Or wild animals will multiply around you. 
But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, throwing them into great confusion until they are destroyed. In reading this chapter, you can see why people question God's character. In verses 2 and 16, God tells the Israelites they must destroy the nations. This command is repeated throughout the book of Deuteronomy with even stronger language. For example, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 3 that God tells the Israelites to annihilate these nations. And finally in Deuteronomy chapter 20 verses 16 through 18, God repeats his command with even stronger language and tells the Israelites, do not leave alive anything that breathes, completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. As you can see, this is not your typical feel-good section of scripture. After reading these verses, we can see why people would struggle with what God is commanding the Israelites to do. Based on the shocking commands given by God in these verses, I want us to ask ourselves, Are the commands of God proof of unjust genocide or righteous judgment? From these verses that I just read, I seem to have proved the point of people like Richard Dawkins who claim that God is a malevolent genocidal bully. However, what we haven't done yet is ask the question, why? Why did God command that the Israelites annihilate and destroy these nations. At the beginning of this episode, I brought up Rudolf Haas and asked if his execution would be just if his crime was simply stealing a loaf of bread. The obvious answer to that question was no, absolutely not. When learning more about Rudolf Haas, it became evident that he was guilty of a heinous crime and that his sentencing was an example of righteous judgment. Likewise, when we look at the context of Scripture, we see that the decree given by God in Deuteronomy was actually an example of his righteous judgment. In order to address this serious topic, I'll be presenting four points, which I will do over the course of this and our next episode. The four points that I'll be making are first, God's wrath is righteous judgment being poured out on the wicked. Second, you have not been saved because of your righteousness. Third, God's righteous judgment on the nations is a sample of his wrath to come. And my fourth and final point is that God's free offer of grace will save you from the wrath to come. I'll cover the first two points in this episode and the other two points in the next episode. So let's dive in. I mentioned that my first point is that God's wrath is righteous judgment being poured out on the wicked. From these verses that I just read, it's hard to see why I could claim that God's wrath is righteous judgment being poured out on the wicked. This is why we need the context of surrounding verses and chapters. For example, at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 4, God explains that it's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out. God goes on to repeat in chapter 9 verse 5 that it was the wickedness of these nations that brought about their destruction. So then, 
we need to ask ourselves, what was their wickedness? Throughout Deuteronomy, God tells the Israelites to destroy the altars of the pagan gods that these nations worshipped. God told them that if they didn't, Israel would learn their detestable ways. We see God telling Israel this in Deuteronomy chapter 7 at the end of verse 16, as well as throughout the rest of Deuteronomy. Now, you might be listening to this episode and thinking to yourself, Really, Brian? The crime of the nations which led to their destruction and annihilation was the worship of pagan gods? The answer to this is yes. However, there's more to it than just the worship of pagan gods. It's what these nations were doing in their worship of these pagan gods that's significant. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 13, we read that these nations were offering their children as sacrifices to their pagan gods, and it was because of these detestable practices that God was destroying these nations. In fact, in conducting research on this topic, I came across several scholarly articles. Oxford University published an article titled, Ancient Carthaginians Really Did Sacrifice Their Children. This article explains that there was an overwhelming amount of archaeological evidence proving that this ancient culture did in fact offer their children to their pagan gods. In an article from the Biblical Archaeology Society titled, Did the Carthaginians Really Practice Infant Sacrifice?, Researchers described stone grave markings on the urns that were discovered. According to the article, these urns contained inscriptions that spoke of offerings to the Punic gods Baal, Haman, and Tanit. These discoveries provided grim evidence for horrific religious practices carried out by these nations. These practices were documented by many ancient writers, including Plutarch. In the article that I just mentioned, titled, Did the Carthaginians Really Practice Infant Sacrifice? They quote Plutarch, who said the following about child sacrifice that took place. He wrote this, But with full knowledge and understanding, the Carthaginians offered up their own children, and those who had no children would buy little ones from poor people and cut their throats as if they were so many lambs or young birds. From this description, It's clear that this practice was barbaric. However, Plutarch doesn't stop there. In volume 2 of his work titled Morelia, Plutarch continues his description of the practice of child sacrifice. He writes the following on page 171, that after they would cut the throats of the children, the mother stood by without a tear or moan. But should she utter a single moan or let fall a single tear, she had to forfeit the money and her child was sacrificed nevertheless, and the whole area before the statue was filled with a loud noise of flutes and drums, so that the cries of wailing should not reach the ears of the people. In a scholarly article titled Canite Child Sacrifice, Abortion in the Bible, it further details the overwhelming amount of evidence for child sacrifice that took place by these nations. In this article written by Henry B. Smith, Smith explains that urns containing the burnt remains of children were discovered. More than that, he explained that it is estimated that there are tens of thousands of these urns. Smith went on to point out that based on the inscriptions that were discovered on these grave markings, it's clear that these children were offered as sacrifices to their gods. 
This is known because the markings seem to say, and I quote, live sacrifice fulfillment. Now, many other sources could be cited. However, it's clear from the information that I've shared that these pagan practices were blatantly wicked. And sadly, these child sacrifices weren't limited to a small number of instances. As I pointed out, it's believed that in one site alone, it's estimated that there are tens of thousands of these child sacrifice graves. And as I already explained, the engravings on these urns make it clear that these children had been sacrificed by their own parents to their pagan god. Let me go back to point number one, that it's God who is pouring out his wrath on the wicked. Even though God used the Israelites as his instrument of wrath, God made it clear that ultimately it was he that was destroying the nations. He makes this clear throughout the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 3, God makes it clear where he says, But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. In chapter 11, verse 23, we read that it is the Lord that is driving out the nations. And lastly, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 1, God tells us that it is He that has destroyed the nations. And as we've seen, God ordered that these nations be destroyed due to their wickedness And as with the judgment that was issued for the Nazi commandant, Rudolf Haas, the judgment that God issued on these nations was just and righteous. My second point is that you have not been saved because of your righteousness. Now, you might be thinking, Brian, where in the book of Deuteronomy are you getting this point from? We see a small glimpse of this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 9 where God explains, The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your ancestors that He brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. We see here that God choosing Israel had nothing to do with them and had everything to do with God. More than that, we see in verse 9 that Israel was chosen because of the faithfulness of God, not because of the faithfulness of Israel, which ties to point number 4, which we will see in our next episode. The fact that Israel was not chosen or saved because of their righteousness is made clear in chapter 9, where we read in verses 4 through 6 that after the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, It is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of their land, but on account 
of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. Notice that God repeated himself three times in these verses, telling the Israelites that it was not due to their righteousness that he was driving out the nations. In fact, at the end of verse 6, he flat out calls them stubborn and stiff-necked. God makes it clear in these verses that his wrath was being poured out on the wicked and his grace for Israel was due to his faithfulness in keeping his covenant promise. Now, the context of Deuteronomy is that God was speaking to the Israelites. However, we know from all of Scripture that these principles apply to us too. God makes it clear that it's not due to our righteousness that we are saved from the wrath of God. Instead, the righteousness that saves us comes only from Jesus Christ, which we will see in point number four. The context of Scripture also shows that the wrath of God that was poured out on the nations is just a small sample of His wrath that is yet to come. Which brings us to our third point. For the sake of time, I'll need to address my third and fourth points in my next episode. However, instead of waiting a month to upload, I'll upload both episodes together. Before I end this episode, let me recap what we've discussed. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, God clearly gives the command that the Israelites destroy and annihilate seven nations. However, we saw in this episode that the nations were destroyed not because there was something special about the Israelites, but because of the wickedness of the nations. We also saw that the wrath that was carried out on the nations was ultimately carried out by God as righteous judgment for their heinous and wicked acts. Lastly, we saw that the wrath poured out on these nations is a glimpse of the wrath that is to come on anyone who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's all the time that we have for today. Come back next time as we continue our study of Deuteronomy and asking the question, is the command to wipe out complete people groups an example of unjust genocide or righteous judgment? Come back next time for our conclusion. God bless.